Gregor, Jet, and Hez arrive in front of Rabrat's gang hideout, intending to pick up the motorcycles he agreed to lend them while they surveilled the rival gang's chop shop. The hideout isn't much more than a dirty, run-down house. Three gang members sitting on the porch have taken notice of the group. I boldly walk up to them. I follow Jet. We need to speak about Rabrat. The gang members look at each other. Rabrat ain't here right now. I call Rabrat on my comm link. Nobody answers. <sighs> I eye the baddies warily. Where is he? I don't know. Rab does what he wants. I ain't his mom. I turn to the rest of the group. He's not answering, and he's not here. Well, let's at least get the motorcycles. We can haggle with him later. Yeah, let's head down to the docks before we lose our daylight. Hez, where do we get the cycles? They should be here waiting for us. I'm sure Rabrat told you guys about it. Yeah, you guys are the guys that are that are going to take out that gang, right? Could be. Might not be. Where are the motorcycles? Well, if you guys are those guys that are taking out that gang, we got some motorcycles for you. But if not, get the frag out of here. We are those guys. Hmm. Yeah, I remember the troll coming in. You got the motorcycle uh, a few weeks ago, right? Yes. Yeah, follow me. The gang member walks them around the side of the house and into a backyard. He knocks on a large, roll-up door that doesn't look quite up to code. Hey, open up. As the door rolls open, everyone sees a cement floor stained with oil, a motorcycle lift, a few tool chests, and several motorcycles parked along the wall. Half are shiny and new looking, and half are rusted buckets of bolts that look like they're being held together with duct tape and clothes hangers. The garage looks like it takes up most of the first floor of the house. I look around the shop, remembering every detail that I could recall later. You said there were four of you, so you've come for the other, um, you've come, so you've come for the other three, three motorcycles? I'm gonna keep mine here for now. Yeah, same as Jet, I'm gonna keep mine here for now. I look around for the motorcycle that I'm gonna come back for. The gang member is having noticeable difficulty keeping track of all the numbers in his head. So, uh, three motorcycles? So, um, uh, so one. You need, you need one motorcycle. Yeah. All right. He walks to the end of the line, past the shiny new motorcycles, and selects a partially rusted cruiser with stuffing poking out of a slit in the seat. The gas tank is dented, and the tires look bald. A helmet is strapped to the side. We'll need another helmet. He grabs a full-face helmet with a cracked visor from a shelf and puts it on the handlebars. He begins to walk the bike out, motioning everyone to follow him back onto the street. He parks the vehicle in the gutter, right where it looks like it has always belonged. I crack a smile. Well, at least we won't stand out. <laughs> Good point. He starts the motorcycle just to see if it will turn on, then turns it off and hands the keys to Drager. 
All right, are we all ready to go then? I'm in. Let's do this. Thank you for your motorcycle. We'll come back for the others later. Mm, yeah. The gang member walks back to the porch. Thanks, fellas. Till next time. I hop on the back of Hez's motorcycle. I hop on the back of Traeger's motorcycle. I start her up, make sure that jet is comfortable, and head to the docks. Drager and Hez stop their bikes a good 80 meters away from the docks at Toxic Beach. A strong smell of ocean spray and sun-dried seaweed is in the air. Everyone dismounts and walks to two nearby dumpsters, leaning around the sides to observe the docks. I look around, taking in my surroundings. The road continues to a building flanked on both sides by tall, six-meter-high fences with thick metal bars and barbed wire on top. The fence on the left looks like it's meant to swing open, while the one on the right slides on rails. The center building looks like a check-in point, or a guard post, also adorned with barbed wire on top, with tinted windows on all sides. Only one window is clear, and a man in a uniform can be seen through it. He looks like he's watching a computer monitor. Behind the building is a larger attached warehouse and on top of the warehouse billows the California Free State flag, with a grizzly bear in the center of a red and white rising sunburst. To the left are docks stretching out into the ocean, with boats of various sizes moored and bobbing in the tide. They range from personal speedboats to tugboats to a large Ares Macro Technology commercial barge, which at the moment obscures most of the view of the rest of the boats. Beyond and to the right of the check-in area appear to be buildings that aren't quite as big as the main warehouse, but still block the view of the rest of the dock warehouse area. Kurt, I think you should take a crack at talking to that guard. Talk him into letting us in. Make something up. Let him know we're, you know, looking for someone. Or searching. I don't know. Make something up. You're supposed to be good at this, right? Well, first of all, I want to know what our plan is. I've got some ideas here. We can either go in from the water and climb onto the dock. We can wait for a truck to pass and try to hitch a ride on it. Or we can try and get Kurt to look like a police officer who's on duty over here. Kurt, do you think that you could disguise yourself as an officer? Yeah, I did a job once. We ended up pulling it off because somebody just engaged the guard the entire time while everyone else snooped around. Seems like it might be a good idea now, Kurt. Well... I wonder how much of the lay of the land we can get before anyone gets wise to us. Is there a place we can see more of the docks from where we are? Also, we could come back tonight and see how security changes. You know, we might not want to go barging in there because it's our only one shot to figure out the docks. If we get found out, then they're going to bump up security. It might be completely different security at night than it is during the day shift, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and we're planning to hit the docks at night, aren't we? That's a good idea. Well, we can get in now if you do your distraction deal and and talk up a storm to him as a cop. You can ask question after question until they get annoyed and keep going. Until we're done, we sneak out, we signal you, and then you walk out of there. Are you guys willing to sneak in while I try to distract them? Yeah, as you distract them, I can climb the fence and try to get the fence open. How many of us need to go in there? Because, Jed, if you can sneak in by yourself in case they join alone... Me and Hez could cause a ruckus between the two of us. And then Kurt, while he's talking as a cop, stops us 
from causing a ruckus just so he has room to do uh, other stuff? I don't know, man. Truth be told, I think I'd like Hez to join me. She's got a great memory for this stuff. I shudder at the suggestion, but what if you make the troll disappear? Yes, that could work. Can you do that again? I can definitely try. Do you want to risk it, though? I'm going to make Hez invisible, climb the fence, and pick the lock while Kurt and Drager try to cause a distraction. Is that right? The guard post is right next to the gate, so we have to draw them away somehow. Yeah, if I get caught, I have a plan. I'm just going to pretend I'm a prostitute and that one of the guards here owes me money. I'm just going to cause a scene until somebody that doesn't exist comes out. I might get kicked out, but they won't think anything worse of me. Hopefully. That's the backup plan. That's the backup plan if I get caught. Yes. All right, that seems like a good plan. Before we do this, are there any cameras? I look around in augmented reality for any electronics that I can spot operating on the campus. A crisp, pastel, see-through electronic version of reality overlays Hez's vision. A camera icon appears behind the largest warehouse, along with a camera facing the main entrance. She also notices streams of data from the cameras running through the walls and into the signature electronic activity of a computer within the guard post, suggesting the cameras are hardwired to the computer system. Hey, Drager, do you have any explosives? Weird question, I know. I only got guns and blades. Uh, I open up my disguise kit. I wonder what I can create with this. I think I might be able to take care of the cameras, guys. I have an idea. If we fry their computers, they won't know who's coming in and out today. So we can pretend to be just a normal shipment or someone coming to pick up a normal shipment. I like this plan. Less work for me. All right. I take out my deck in preparation to enter the Matrix. Hez sits on the ground and leans on a dumpster as her cyberdeck boots up. Lights blink and meters begin to rise. She pulls a thick, durable-looking cord from the deck and attaches it to her head, just behind her ear. Can you all stand guard for me? I am definitely watching. I stand guard with Jet. I keep an eye out. Hez looks up at her group, then looks back at her deck resting beside her. She presses a few buttons, then looks forward and takes a deep breath. Everyone sees Hez's body go limp, while Hez sees something entirely different. At first, there's nothing but darkness behind her eyelids. Moments later, pixel-sized multicolored sparks begin to coalesce from the corners of her vision. The pixels increase in numbers rapidly, and a more substantial image begins to build itself from the outside inward. Once Hez's vision completely fills to a bright kaleidoscope of color, everything flashes white, and a light green grid extends from Hez out into infinity. Rapidly building order and rendering to stupendous detail thanks to more than a century of digital graphics innovations. There is a main two-dimensional grid that is on Hez's plane of perception which forms a 360-degree horizon. Extending up and down from every intersection are impossibly thin straight lines forming barely perceptible perfect cubes that seem to line up and create nested square fractals when Hez's point of view shifts slightly. The lines that make up every millimeter of this world look like they could be perfectly taut hairs or filaments, illuminated like a shifting laser light through smoke. A torrent of information then floods Hez's mind. In the distance, the city of San Francisco is a bright, glowing beacon, 
full of advertisements, spotlights, data traffic, and other shapes that couldn't exist in normal reality. Below the horizon, thousands of icons of real-world devices create a galaxy of points of light, each with a micro-thin line attaching them to their real-world counterparts. Those that are farthest away from Hez flicker due to distance and data lag, and fade into an electric pastel cloud of background information. Some icons like vehicles and comlinks look like they're moving slowly in the distance in real time, creating a lifelike movement to the icon cloud. Everything else appears to rapidly teleport from one place to another, or simply pop in and out of existence. Above the horizon are geometric shapes of all sizes, which represent corporate hosts or businesses one can enter. Many seem like they have an infinity mirror effect, looking like they are much larger on the inside than they appear on the outside. Orbiting each host are varying numbers of 3D and 2D advertisements and intrusion countermeasures. Some even have personnel jacked in and keeping watch, known as security spiders. The sky is a thick cluster of hosts that appear to get larger and larger the higher they go up. Beyond all of the nearby small hosts, dominating the black sky, are the massive hosts that represent the top 10 mega-corporations, which look even larger than the city itself, with their own smaller affiliate hosts and countermeasures orbiting them. Anchoring almost every host in the sky to the grid horizon are streams of data, representing real-world user exchanges that flash like straight arcs of information from billions of Tesla coils. The lines look like thin spiderweb strands that pop into reality for one second, then disappear. The sheer number of exchanges gives an illusion of perpetually shifting, teleporting rain falling from the clouds of hosts above, and falling sideways and upwards to and from other hosts. This rapidly cycling spiderweb of information, along with the light green 3D square grid, makes up the dazzling array known as the Matrix, which moves at the speed of thought. As you look into it, it feels like it's looking back at you. Hez shifts her attention to the nearby guard building, which has an infinitesimal amount of information compared to the glittering mecca known as San Francisco behind her. Only the camera icons, comlinks, and computer information are visible nearby, with a few, less significant icons visible in the background probably electronics on boats. I see the computer with the hardwired camera feeds. I see the orderly code within and prepare to data spike it. I imagine a harmful sphere of red, chaotic code, and once it's formed, launch it directly at the computer's coding. The sphere launches at the computer at the speed of light, but the computer's firewall countermeasure immediately wraps around and bounces it back at Hez. The spear feeds back into her and her persona jumbles and becomes disorganized. The matrix seems to momentarily shatter and split. Drager, Jet, and Kurt see Hez's body silently tense up and spasm, then go still again. I lean down and check Hez's pulse, making sure she's okay. Jet isn't sure what a troll's resting heart rate is supposed to be, but sighs in relief when she feels anything at all. What just happened? I don't, I, I don't know, I don't know. Nothing seems physically wrong with her, guys. I'm not sure what's happening. Okay. Okay, just, can you keep an eye on her, though? Yeah. I gently slap Hez's face. Hez? Hez, are you okay? Hez.
Game mastering and narration by Paul Greenleaf. Draeger is played by Marcus Freeman. Jatangeline is played by Mackenzie Paulus. Kurt is played by Chris Tommaso. Hez is played by Torvald Tempestus. Editing, arrangement, original music, and production by Paul Greenleaf. For more story, character details, production notes, and how to support Sonic Realms, please visit sonicrealmspodcast.com. To learn more about the world of Shadowrun, visit shadowrun.com and shadowruntabletop.com. The Tops Company, Inc. has sole ownership of the names, logo, artwork, marks, photographs, sounds, audio, video, and or any proprietary material used in connection with the game Shadowrun. The Tops Company, Inc. has granted permission to Sonic Realms to use such names, logos, artwork, marks, and or any proprietary materials for promotional and informational purposes on its website, but does not endorse and is not affiliated with Sonic Realms in any official capacity whatsoever. All other works mentioned in the podcast are the property of their respective owners. Original content of the Sonic Realms podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 unported and share-like license. If you use any part of the show, please credit Sonic Realms. And hey, thanks for listening.